Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. It's great to be with you this morning. We are continuing in our series in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 16, verse 1, and we'll get started there in a moment. And as you're turning there, I'm going to say a quick prayer for us this morning. Jesus, we, um, we thank you on a day like today for the beautiful city that we live in, uh, for the beautiful culture that you have called us to uh, engage in for the sake of your gospel and for the beautiful day outside. We have a lot to uh, be grateful for. But as we gather together in your name, God, uh, I pray that you would teach us, that you would um, light and enlighten our, our hearts and our minds to see who you are to see who we are to be as we follow after you. And as we talk about today, would you uh, open our eyes to the things that threaten to undermine our discipleship to you uh, as we follow after you and and are conformed increasingly into your your likeness? Uh, and, And would you just be central to every part of that conversation this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. It says this. It says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky... But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this amongst themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets full you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets full you gathered? How is it that you don't understand, I was not talking about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right. So, interesting set of verses this morning. 
let's start by putting them in context. If you have been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we have been studying a series of events that unfolded around the Sea of Galilee. First, John the Baptist is executed, and Jesus is forced to cross the lake. And after crossing the lake, we see that he feeds the 5,000 Jewish crowd. And then the Pharisees, or the Bible teachers of his day, come to challenge him about an issue of ritual cleanliness. And after sort of rebuking the Pharisees, the next event that we read about is Jesus feeding the 4,000 Gentiles, which is what we looked at last week. And now again this morning, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to challenge him by asking for a sign. And so if you look back over the last few weeks, we actually start to see this uh, pattern of Jesus feeding the masses with bread and then being challenged by the Pharisees who are rejecting him. And then he again feeds the masses with bread and now again the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, are coming to, to challenge him by demanding a sign. And this week, Jesus is going to address these religious leaders and then sort of tie everything together using an analogy about bread. First, Jesus responds to the Pharisees. The Pharisees ask for a sign from heaven, which, if you've been with us through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you know that in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospels generally, the Pharisees are constantly doing this. They're constantly coming to Jesus and asking for a sign. But in doing so, they are revealing the fact that they are either unwilling or unable to see all of the miraculous things that Jesus has been doing all along unprecedented and miraculous things have been happening in and through Jesus on a regular basis, which, among other things, should signal to the average Jewish mind that God is in fact with him and for him, and that perhaps he is their long-awaited Messiah. But the Pharisees show up, in the midst of all of this stuff happening, and they say, hey, could you like, you know, like show us a sign or, you know, do something miraculous for us? To which Jesus says, essentially, no. You are looking for the wrong signs in the wrong places for the wrong reasons. And in the process, you've missed it. You can't see or understand what's right in front of you. When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You're blind to what's happening right in front of you. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. And, and in context, they are wicked in part because they have chosen to blind themselves to the very real work that Jesus is doing, demanding instead that he perform for them. 
And so Jesus, instead of bowing to that request, uh, counters by offering only the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Which, to be clear, is Jesus' creative way of referencing his own future resurrection. In other words, you are so nearsighted that you can't tell what's going on, even though it's really pretty obvious. But I will give you a sign that you can't possibly miss. For three days, I will be dead, and on the third day, the tomb will be empty, and I will be alive again. How's that for a sign that God is with me and for me? And of course, that is exactly how the future will unfold when the time finally comes. But in the meantime, Jesus refuses to bow to their demands, and he leaves the region. And so they jump on a boat and start crossing the Sea of Galilee, and as they're leaving the region, you get this really interesting exchange that happens regarding bread. Okay, so once again, the disciples are crossing the lake, and once again, they are short on food. But this time, it is by their own mistake. And the way that all of this uh, plays out, in my imagination, is that they're halfway across the lake, and their minds start to turn toward the dinner that is to come. And then they begin kind of rummaging through their stuff, only to realize, oh shoot, we forgot bread. Do you, do you want to go tell Jesus? No, it's, it's, it's your fault. It's your fault we forgot bread. You go tell him. Well, you can just go break the news to him. So they're, they're realizing we made this mistake. In the meantime, Jesus is looking out across the water, and he's thinking about the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders and the people who have blinded themselves to his true identity, who are looking for the wrong things in the wrong places for the wrong reasons who have been unwilling or unable to follow him for a vast myriad of reasons. And as he's contemplating this stuff, suddenly he, he turns to his disciples and kind of out of the blue, he says, be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And immediately the disciples think, oh no, yeast. Yeast is in bread. We don't have bread. Oh my gosh, he knows. He knows that we forgot the bread. How foolish. I told you to stop and get the bread. Back off, John. You know how to buy bread too. Like you, it's your fault. And again, Jesus chimes in, right? Hey, 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 guys, guys, relax. You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets full you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets full you gathered? Bread shortages are my speciality. 
Like, we're not going to starve, okay? That, the, the dinner mishap is not the issue. How, how, do you, how do you not understand? I'm not talking to you about bread. And, and notice that this, this last line that he says here is the exact same line that, that he started with. He says, again, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this time they get it. Oh, okay. He's not talking about our bread mistake. He, this is about something bigger. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Which really just leaves us with one big looming question this morning. What is the teaching or the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And why call it yeast? And the answer to both of those questions is going to be a cultural one. So, uh, first, first off, uh, the idea of yeast. Uh, this imagery of yeast was, was a loaded one in Israelite culture because it played a role in their story from the time of the exodus from Egypt. So for those of you who are familiar with the storyline of the scriptures, the Israelites are freed from slavery in Egypt by God miraculously and they leave Egypt so quickly and so suddenly that they don't have time to bake a leavened bread or bread with yeast. And so they leave in such a rush that they end up having to eat uh, unleavened bread or bread without yeast along their journey. So after they get settled into the land that is modern-day Israel, they started these celebrations that God asked them to remember what he had done for them through a celebration called the Passover. So now they're settled in the land, they're a nation, and they're told as God's people, hey, every year celebrate the Passover. And one of the things they were to do on the Passover was to eat unleavened bread, or bread without yeast. And so not only were they not to put that yeast in their bread during this festival, they were actually to just remove it from their homes. So it was this time of remembrance, hey, clear out the yeast. There, sh there shouldn't be yeast in our homes, there shouldn't be yeast in our bread, this is, and, and that's how we're going to remember this. Well, they did that year after year after year after year uh, for centuries. And, and eventually, through these celebrations, yeast... It became associated not with something that makes bread taste better, but with impurity. Are, are you with me so far? Okay, so in, in the Israelite mind, yeast is associated with impurity. So to say that there is leaven or yeast in someone's teaching was to say that they had corrupted the truth, that they'd watered it down, that they'd diluted it. He is saying that their teaching has become impure. 
So some aspects of the thinking and teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is, is impure, and it's being mixed into the whole dough of life with God, and it's influencing all of it. It's, it's corrupting all of it. So God designed something good, and he gave them something good, but they're taking this extra ingredient and, and they're mixing it into life with God. And, and along the way, all of the dough is influenced and, and flavored. It's, it's like glitter. It, it just gets everywhere. And, and, you, and you can't get rid of it. it he's saying, hey, hey, be on your guard against glitter. Like, don't let your six-year-old bring it home. Okay? Because you'll never, it, it'll just get everywhere. It's that same type of imagery, but with yeast. Okay, so, so the imagery in the Israelite mind, and hopefully in ours in this moment, is, is clear. But the question again becomes, just what is this poisonous teaching? And we might be quick to assume that it's a theological point. My first assumption is, well, all of these uh, religious groups of leaders, they must all be mistaken in some key teaching about uh, God's nature or about what God has done in redemptive history or about what God promises to do in the future. But it's worth noting that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were different groups that did not always see eye to eye. In fact, they were constantly clashing. Uh, theologically, politically, they had different visions. Okay? And so the Sadducees, in my mind, are, are almost secular in their thinking. They believe that there is no resurrection of the dead. And in many ways, they were a wealthy, privileged minority that was sort of in bed with Rome and, and therefore placed in charge of running the temple. Okay, so, so that's, that's the Sadducees. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are more grassroots, like back to Torah and following the law, maintaining cultural identity sort of people. And in the process, they were actually much more theologically accurate than the Sadducees. They believed in following Torah. They believed in maintaining cultural identity. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the coming Messiah. And they clashed with the Sadducees on all sorts of issues. So the fact that they come together to challenge Jesus is actually a strange occurrence. I don't know if there's a perfect modern-day equivalent but it would be like saying the Mormons and the Buddhists came together to challenge the teachings of Jesus. And you kind of say, wait, what? Like, why, what do they have in common? Why are, are those groups working together? Then the heads of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party came in partnership to disprove Jesus huh, well, that's odd. Then the Catholic priests and the Pentecostal 
revivalists came hand in hand to undermine Jesus. Wait, wait, what? Why are these guys working together? It's an odd partnership, and it forces us to ask, what is Jesus doing that would threaten both parties with such urgency that they would act in unison to take him down? He must be undermining their entire faith. He must be undermining the entire political system. I mean, why else would they be working together? And just as significantly, Jesus tells his disciples to beware of both the teachings of the Sadducees and the teachings of the Pharisees. And again, you're asking those questions. What teachings did these two groups have in common? It would be like saying, hey, beware of the teachings and political vision of the Democrats and the Republicans. And you're saying, wait, 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 what? Beware of the teachings of the Catholic Church and the Pentecostal tent revivalists. And in the Jewish mind, they say, wait, what? Like, since when are those guys teaching the same thing? What do they have in common? And what emerges isn't so much that they have a common Bible teaching or, or a common theological stance, but rather it is a common attitude and common culture that they are to beware of. The Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, Jesus is saying, they're coming at all of this, they're coming at life with God from the wrong angle, with the wrong heart posture. And if you aren't careful in this culture, then you will too. Watch out. Be aware of the way that they approach life with God. And so what Jesus is doing, in essence, in the big picture, is that he's instructing his disciples on the art of engaging with a culture for its redemption and its benefit without being swallowed up by that culture in the process. He's teaching his disciples how to influence a culture without being overly influenced by it. He says, watch out for, for the leaven or the yeast that is their teachings and attitudes and worldview. I'm not asking you to withdraw from your culture and leave it to its own devices. No, no, no. I'm, I'm sending you out to engage. But I don't want you to compromise your discipleship in the process. You, you, you are to influence, flavor, redeem, even take that culture and turn it upside down without, yourself, with, without being turned upside down yourself, without allowing your discipleship to be derailed. You must go to them, Jesus says, lovingly and nonviolently, but if you go to them uncritically, 
without understanding their yeast, without understanding their, their poisonous attitudes and outlooks, then you will actually drink that poison unknowingly, without even thinking about it. You will actually mix their leaven into the whole batch of dough that is life with God, unknowingly and uncritically. And, and, and when you do that, the whole thing is going to become diluted, watered down, impure in a sense. And notice that Jesus' call to strike that balance hasn't changed. The, the yeast of the modern culture may be different, and, and it's changing all the time, but identifying it and being on your guard against it is as much the call of Jesus today as it was back then. It is just as vital to our discipleship to him. If you were in a boat with Jesus this afternoon, out on Lake Coeur d'Alene, or over at Vessel, drinking coffee, or, or whatever, I think Jesus would, would offer the exact same teaching regarding yeast. He would issue the same warning about a similar type of yeast. And to be clear, not everything in our culture is bad. I, I hope we never give that impression. There is a lot in our culture that's awesome and, and that's worth building on and that's beautiful. But there are strong and intensifying strands of thought within our culture that act as yeast, which threatens our discipleship. I think part of the yeast that the culture has to offer is individualism. I, it, it's this attitude that says, I, I don't need authority and I don't need community. In fact, my goal is to not need anyone or anything. Autonomy is the dream. And when it seeps into our discipleship, it sounds something like this. I don't actually need the church, and I don't need biblical community. It can be just me and Jesus, and I will relate to him as an individual and follow him as an individual. And that hasn't truly worked for any other human being in human history, but I think it will work for me. I think a related strands of cultural yeast is the spirit of consumerism that has so taken our culture. It's this attitude that the world is actually about my comfort and my pleasure and my happiness, and those are to be achieved first and foremost through the accumulation of material stuff. The problem is, that if the world is actually about my comfort and pleasure, then how likely is it that I'm going to pick up my cross and follow after Jesus? 
In, in fact, that option might be out of the question. And though the, 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 the dichotomy isn't always presented to us with such clarity, that is the fork in the road that we are constantly faced with. And in, in essence, it's one of these major issues that American Christianity is wrestling with. Because the risk is that we will be lulled to sleep in this spirit of consumerism and comfort and pleasure, which is often just hedonism, thinly veiled. And suddenly, in the midst of that culture, discipleship to Jesus begins to look too radical and too costly to be worth it. I would rather just do what makes me feel comfortable. Go out to another restaurant, have another drink, start a new series on Netflix, buy the next item on Amazon. There is too much pleasure available in this world to get caught up in all of this cross-carrying silliness. Just consume. And in the midst of that, we have a whole class of people who don't call themselves followers of Jesus, but they call themselves believers. Well, following is a little bit too radical for me. It's a little too costly for me. But I don't want to miss out on eternal life, so I'll, I'll believe. I, I, I believe you, Jesus. And then there's this line in the sand. And everything else is mine. Everything else is governed by the spirit of consumerism. Is it any wonder that droves and generations of Christians in our culture are beginning to walk away. Why is that? Well, I'm going to argue that in part, the culture neutralized them. Their environments lulled them to sleep. They weren't on guard against the yeast of the culture, and it got mixed into every aspect of their faith through and through. And in that environment, many of us walk away, and those who don't often approach the church not as a family, and not as a living community in which we are to participate, but as more of a spiritual Amazon. Where I'm a consumer, and the church is not a family. No, no, it is a consumer enterprise that exists to meet my needs and make me feel pleasure and make me feel comfort. And so suddenly in that culture, there's no commitment to community. And, and, and at the slightest sign of discomfort, well, I'll just leave and go to another place where I continue to feel unchallenged, where I continue to feel comfort, where I continue to feel pleasure. And, and all of a sudden, in this culture, we begin to choose the church more on the production value of the band 
and, and the quality of the coffee than we do on, on its biblical teaching, or, or, or the value of having genuine community with people live, in-person, not profile pictures, but real people and real conversations in real time. We're losing that. And the internet has just been fuel on the fire. Many of you are living in the first generation that has grown up with the internet, that, that does not remember a time when, when you didn't have instant access to everything on the planet. And, and this new world, whether we like it or not, begins to shape every aspect of who we are. And in our cultural context, it has been fuel on the fires of individualism and consumerism. The internet in a sense, has begun turning us into these isolated little kings and queens who increasingly see the world as being about them and are increasingly awkward in social settings. It is becoming increasingly difficult and scary for young people to walk into a real church building and interact with real people face to face let alone to join a small group and to let the walls down and to open up about who you are and where you're at with God and, and what he's doing in your life and to pray for real people in real time and to be prayed over in your weakness and in your vulnerability. Why is it so hard for us to do that? Well, we're fallen human beings to be sure, but the digital age is killing us. You know what the biggest threat to your discipleship is? It's your iPhone. And we're not even ready to talk about it yet. Because for me to even bring it up is to make some of you upset and uncomfortable that I would even go there. Because your iPhone is like a part of you. To throw your iPhone away is the equivalent of, of cutting off your right arm. And yet, we're growing up in this culture where now many kindergartners have them. It's a whole new reality that we're not fully prepared to face. We, we don't fully understand the effect that that will have on our discipleship, yet alone things that, strands of cultural yeast that we don't even have time to talk about today, like, like, our, cult, like, like our, our sexual ethic and our sexual experience that is shaped by this hedonistic, overconnected world from the youngest of ages. And, and we don't even have time to unpack it this morning. That's another conversation for another day. But in all of this, we are barely scratching the surface of the cultural yeast which is on offer. The yeast which many of us mixed into our discipleship uncritically, unthoughtfully, without even questioning it. And, and so you start putting all of this stuff together 
The isolation, the digital age, our new sexual ethic, the spirit of consumerism, our our cultural skepticism and disdain for authority. And, And suddenly, we risk being distracted, bitter, skeptical, and blind as we stagger after Jesus or even stagger away from him. Distracted, bitter, skeptical, blind. That is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the result of their cynicism is that they see nothing. They don't see Jesus for who he is. They don't understand. It's right in front of them and they see none of it. All of this stuff can become poisonous. And if we are to see Jesus for who and what he is, if we are actually going going to follow Jesus in the modern age as whole and competent disciples who are following after him with passion and, and, and effectiveness, then we have to call out the yeast of the modern culture. We have to. Because if we don't call it out, then what we do is we mix it right into the rest of the dough. And and suddenly, everything gets compromised. Suddenly, everything is diluted and and, and watered down and, and almost corrupted. Are you with me? And and I realize that for some of you this is not easy to hear. Because I'm critiquing the very air that we breathe. And and to turn it all off sounds suffocating. But notice that we aren't saying, don't use the internet. We're not saying you shouldn't buy things on Amazon. We aren't saying you need to burn your iPhone or, or shut down all social media, or have no awareness of who you are as an individual. We aren't asking you to withdraw from culture and go live in a cabin out in the woods. But we are saying, be on your guard against those subtle and poisonous shifts that happen when we buy into the mentality of our culture without questioning it. Be on your guard against individualism and consumerism. Be on your guard against cynicism and isolation. Be on your guard against secular political visions of progress that offer you a sad parody and ripoff of the kingdom of heaven. Be on your guard against the culture's sexual behaviors and patterns and ethics, those enslaving cycles of lust, those false versions of freedom. Be on your guard against the fast-paced, over-connected lifestyle that drives anxiety and swallows up your prayer life in the process. All of these things 
tend to distract us, if not neutralize us completely as we follow after Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? He says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is the salt if it loses its saltiness? Instead, as an alternative to all of this neutralizing, compromising stuff, it is the call of Jesus to maintain your saltiness. Be aware of those neutralizing and compromising elements of the culture. Not so that you can stand at a distance and condemn the culture. Not so that you can withdraw into isolation and, and, and post about it on Facebook. But so that you, so that we can transform the culture without ourselves being transformed in the process. Maintain your saltiness. Read your Bible. Like, like actually read it. Maybe even on paper. Meditate on the Psalms. Pray. Be in genuine community with really flawed and amazing followers of Jesus who accept you for who you are and want to share their lives with you. Have real conversations about things that actually matter. Think about blessing more than consuming. Think about serving more than you think about ruling over your own little Amazonian kingdom. Do the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Worship Jesus in spirit and in truth and fall more in love with Him in the process. And in addition to all of those things, be on your guard against the yeast of the culture along the way. Because it, when it gets mixed into the whole batch, it just has a way of spoiling things. And the patterns of this culture can feel overpowering and contagious. But so can the kingdom of God. And when the people of God maintain their saltiness. When we do this as a community, then the kingdom of God is equally contagious, if not more so. And Jesus looks at you, and he says, you are the light of the world. You are salt that flavors and influences. You are actually kingdom yeast to reverse that analogy that gets mixed into the whole dough of secular, unbelieving bread that is our culture. And, and as we are mixed into it, we bring light and life and truth and beauty into a worldview that is dead and dying and hopeless. And I know that many of you right now are questioning whether or not God can truly use you 
to actually go out and be agents of cultural transformation. Surely after everything we've just talked about, my life is too compromised. Surely I have too much of the yeast of the culture to actually be kingdom yeast to them. Surely God can't use me to do all of this transformational stuff that you're talking about. But I want you to remember who Jesus' original audience was. You know the first guys that he proclaimed to to be salt and light? It's these guys right here in this boat. Ah, yeast. I get it. It's because we forgot bread. What? Are you serious? Like, Jesus, these are the guys that you're proclaiming to be the salt and light of the world? These are the guys that are going to light this kingdom movement that's going to ripple out across generations and nations? They don't even know what you're talking about. It's these guys. And and I want to bring this straight into this morning. Because you are disciples of Jesus. And we have the same Jesus calling us to the same task in a similar type of compromising culture. And we need to hear Jesus' words in order to navigate that world well. You want to sum up Jesus' teaching this morning in a single phrase? Don't lose your saltiness. Don't become leavened. Don't become diluted and watered down and and neutralized. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Maintain integrity of discipleship. Don't let those outside poisonous attitudes compromise the good and beautiful things that God is doing in and through you. And when we do that, when we maintain our saltiness, when we're on our guard against the yeast of our culture, all of a sudden we wake up to find that the community of disciples which we call the church really is functioning as salt and light. That we really do offer a whole new way of living and breathing and being that is rooted in the way of Jesus and runs counter to the cultural norm in a way that's subversive and challenging and beautiful and ultimately contagious. That's what discipleship to Jesus is all about. Let's pray. Jesus, as we sit under the teaching of Scripture this morning, we recognize you, yes, as Savior, yes, as Lord and King, but also as our teacher, and also as our friend, who sits in the boat with us and and, and teaches us and guides us in in grace and in love that is just intoxicating. Jesus, the way that you led these men in discipleship is stunning. 
in the way that you lead us as now renewed, adopted in sons and daughters of the living God, the way that you lead us, not, not just as king, but also as teacher and as rabbi, the way that you lead us is beautiful. And, and what you lead us to is life. In fact, Jesus, you spoke of something that was called life that is truly life. That is what you came to bring us. And yet as we walk out of these doors, we recognize that we have a culture with, with loud noises and flashing lights and, and plenty of friends walking the wrong direction. And behind every sign and every temptation, it, we hear that voice whispering, no, 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 life is found over here. Come find life in. And then we fill in the blank. <sighs> Jesus, forgive us for not filling in that blank with you. Forgive us for all of the ways that we have wandered, for all of the yeast that we have mixed into our dough, so to speak, for all of the ways that we have failed to trust you, for all of the ways that we have failed to come to you for life that is truly life. And as we come to you, Jesus, as we come under your teaching, as we come under your kingship, we also receive your forgiveness. For no one has authority to issue cleansing and forgiveness aside from our King Jesus. And that's your heart, God, is to cleanse and, and to forgive and to restore. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, to remove years worth of yeast that we have mixed in. Jesus, would you do that work amongst your people today? Would you open our eyes as to where we can find life that is truly life? And as we follow you in your grace and your love to, to that wellspring of life, Jesus, I pray that this would be a community marked by grace, that this would be a community marked by your love, that this would be a community marked by your kingdom, that this would be a community of salt, of salty people who are after the real thing and not the ripoffs, God. And as we do that, we actually trust that there's all sorts of people out there that are going to want a taste of what we're experiencing in here. That your kingdom will become more contagious than all of the other things that the culture offers us. God, would you lead us into that place? In Jesus' name, amen.